I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, a holistic look at music's effect on our everyday lives. As an educator, I am well aware that there are many different learning styles and ways of learning. At the same time, scientific research does point to certain common denominators in successful learning, meaning learning that not only acquires knowledge, but also retains that knowledge and applies it to future problems and scenarios. So as a teacher and a parent and someone who loves lifelong learning, I was really intrigued to come across a book titled Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. The book is written by cognitive scientists to clarify what those common denominators of successful learning are so that we can make our own learning and teaching sticky, so to speak. <laughs> I have one of the book's three authors with me today. Peter Brown is a writer and novelist living right here in the Twin Cities in St. Paul, Minnesota. Peter is retired from a career as a management consultant. He is lead author of this best-selling book, Make It Stick, which he co-wrote with two cognitive psychologists from Washington University, Henry Rodiger and Mark McDaniel. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Peter. I'm delighted to be here, Mindy. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. Peter, I found the research in Make It Stick priceless as a music teacher, and it's equally valuable for any educator and for students and business people, lifelong learners, pretty much anyone who wants to learn smarter instead of just trying harder. I want to talk about the research takeaways in the book, but before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about your involvement in the book and how this book came to be. Well, I'm a writer, as you mentioned. I've, I've done a variety of things in my life, and I was uh, between book projects trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I was visiting with my brother-in-law, uh, Henry Rodiger, who uh, is a cognitive psychologist at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a, extremely prominent internationally in the field of memory and learning. And he was telling me that he and his colleague Mark McDaniel had headed up a, a team of colleagues at different universities around the country over 10 years, funded by a private foundation doing research into what leads to learning. And he said, we're, we're finding that the things that lead to learning, that make learning stick, are counterintuitive, and we're trying to figure figure out how to get this to a broad audience, mm. uh, general public. And that with that point uh, hatched our plan to collaborate, that I would uh, learn enough from them to write a book that was written for non-scientists like myself. Thank it was you. highly anecdotal <laughs> and so forth. Yeah. And so that's how I got involved in it. And uh, it it was a very, very rich, uh, demanding but rich experience working with the scientists and basically finding the connection between the everyday experience and and the underlying uh, discovery from science. Yeah, well, it was really fascinating and it was kind of interesting. I discovered the book through my library and read it in summer of 2020. It was written in 2014, right? Right. Came okay. Mm -hmm. So I read it in 2020 in the summer and that very next, a couple months later in the fall, I was at a music teacher's meeting and the presenter who was phenomenal 
was talking a lot about this book and referencing it. And I was like, hey, I just read that book too and loved it. And then I was just seeing it referenced everywhere in articles and blogs. And I was like, wow, you know, this it, it's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. And I do, on behalf of all of us non-scientists, thank you for being involved in the writing of the book because it is very easy to understand for those of us who are not in the science world. Well, thank you. Well, let's talk about some of the research takeaways in the book and how some of them, like you said, are counterintuitive, which is really fascinating. One of the big takeaways from the research is when learning is harder and takes effort, it's stronger, it's deeper, it lasts longer. Talk to us a little bit about this takeaway. Yes, there's a cognitive psychologist out of UCLA Uh, husband and wife, uh, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, uh, who have coined this phrase, desirable difficulties. There's some kinds of difficulties during learning that uh, make it stronger and longer lasting. Fundamentally, I would say the top three, uh, as I understand them from uh, being involved in this, one of them is retrieving from memory what you've learned. Mm-hmm. And if if it's something simple, uh, you've read an article, you want to discuss it with someone later, put it aside and recall from memory what were the things in that article, the, the points you want to make, and maybe some of the supporting points. The act of retrieving something from memory uh, that's fresh and new uh, actually strengthens the connections to be able to find it again later. And part and, of retrieving it is allowing some time to forget it a little bit. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's a second principle of desirable difficulty, which is to space out over time. Uh, your learning uh, might be a musical piece you're trying to learn to play. It might be could be just about anything in your life, uh, learning a new sport. Space it out. Come back to it. And when you come back to it and try to recall what you read or learned earlier, it's harder to recall it. And that increased difficulty strengthens the connections in your brain, the brain's just a big network. And when you learn something that you want to retain, you have to actually build physical connections between neurons. And this act of spaced or difficult retrieval from memory and checking to see if you got it right strengthens those connections and makes it easier to recall that learning again later. Mm -hmm. And this is a concept that really affected my thoughts as a piano teacher and a music teacher, because as I think this is one that can seem counterintuitive, because as a teacher, a piano teacher, anyways, for example, I tend to think, okay, if you're going to practice 30 minutes a day, practice 30 minutes all at once, because that's where you're going to see most of the results is if you just stick with it for a full 30 minutes. But after reading this and some other materials, I've definitely started giving my students different instruction and saying, you know what, If you can't get 30 minutes in all at one time, that's totally fine. In fact, research sometimes says that that can be better if you practice 15 minutes, take a break and go do your homework or go to school or whatever you're going to do, and then come back and do the other 15 minutes or say 20 minutes and 10 minutes or, you know, break it up so that you have to come back to it after school or after homework and recall what it was that you did in the morning and The counterintuitive piece of it is you feel like you're making slower progress because you don't get this snowball effect of doing it all at once. But it totally does make sense when you read the research that it's deeper learning and it lasts longer. 
Yeah, you've got it exactly right. That's a third basic principle. First one, recall it from memory and check to see if you got it right. That's going to help you uh, get it in there by trying to get it out. Second is space it out over time because you get a little rusty. Recalling it makes it stronger. The third one is to mix up the kinds of problems you're dealing with. Instead of uh, practicing uh, one passage in a difficult piece of music over and over again, try a little bit and then move away and try a different uh, portion of that or a different musical piece. Then come back again. And this kind of what in the book we call interleaving of different problem types Mm -hmm. in the same sort of domain makes you feel like it's really hard. I'm not getting it. But Mm -hmm. the fact is, by doing that, you're getting a much more sophisticated understanding, which you're not aware of, of the pieces that you're learning. One of the most interesting studies I liked, and I read all kinds of scientific studies. One of them was sort of was like a, what? This is where uh, school kids are learning to toss beanbags into baskets. And one group tossed beanbags into a basket four feet away uh, every day at gym for 12 weeks. And the other group uh, tossed sometimes into three-foot and sometimes into five-foot baskets, but never into four-foot baskets. When they were tested a month after completion, those who had never tossed into the four-foot basket performed much better at tossing into the four-foot basket than those that had tossed into the four-foot basket during practice because they had to learn to judge the three-foot toss and the five-foot toss. They're learning how to identify the problem and respond to the problem. They're Uh, not trying to memorize a particular movement uh, over and over again. So it's the same with music. It's the same with surgery. uh, It's the same with a stunt bike. Well, and what you're talking about is sort of this concept of connecting the dots rather than just mindless repetition of a certain fact. You're connecting the dots and relating, making it relevant to your world, which that's another thing that the book talks quite a bit about is learning to identify patterns and underlying principles and problems rather than simply mindlessly repeating the exact fact that's right in front of you. Right. So asking yourself, how would I explain this to somebody else? How is it like what I already know? What if this were true? What, What would that mean about the thing I've just learned? Uh, those kinds of how, why, what if questions, the elaboration, they call it, yeah. sort of br- builds out, fleshes out the new learning in a way that helps connect it to other things you know and understand it, not just remember it, but understand it better. Yeah. The book says that if you're just engaging in mechanical repetition, you do quickly hit this limit of what you can keep in your mind. But if you use this elaboration where you're making it relevant to your own life, then it's sort of like the learning is endless because you're just connecting what you know about different fields and and connecting those dots and applying patterns and rules and underlying principles. Yeah. One of the things I found very interesting in reading the research and working with my science co-authors is that memory uh, has two essential elements. One is whatever the learning is gets well embedded and connected in your brain by your dealing with it in various settings and so forth. The other is uh, having effective cues for finding it again later, to bringing it up, Mm. to retrieving it. 
Yeah. So I, I don't know about you, Mindy, but I, you know, every once in a while, I'll catch a whiff of something, and it'll take me yeah. right back to my grandmother's kitchen or some other place. Sure. That memory's in there, but it's a cue that brings it flooding back. Yeah. And so this is true of music. Music uh, is one of those powerful things that can take us to a place or a time in our youth. It is a, just a tremendous cue. Mm-hmm. So where I'm headed with this is just the notion that the more diverse the situation in which you are learning something and applying it, the stronger the cues you have for accessing it again later and bringing it back. Uh, well, and that reminds me of one of the quotes that I loved in the book. It said, what we really ought to ask is how to do better at building knowledge and creativity. For without knowledge, you don't have the foundation for the higher level skills of analysis, synthesis, and creative problem solving. And that kind of talks about using that knowledge base and building from that. And, and then from there, connecting those dots to apply it in different contexts. And as a music teacher, I just want to point out that music is fantastic at developing that creativity and connecting the dots. Oh, it really is. There's something about music that transports us and and connects us sort of viscerally to where we are and where we've been and, and how we feel and think. Mm-hmm. This is a quick break for our sponsor, Rollflex. If you're a regular listener of this show, you've probably heard me talk about my Rollflex Pro. It played a significant role in healing my repetitive use injuries, and I've continued to use it every day for years, both to prevent injuries and because it feels so good. The Rollflex Pro is a foam roller tool with clam-shaped arms that provide leverage to adjust the pressure to whatever you like or can tolerate. I use it mainly on my arms and in the neck shoulder area, but it can be used on any body part because of how it's designed. I highly recommend it. As I mentioned, I've been using the Rollflex daily for years and recently signed up as an affiliate. So you can help support the show at no extra cost to you by purchasing through my link in the show notes. The Rollflex is eligible for reimbursement from flexible spending accounts and HSAs. It's also eligible for medical insurance reimbursement in certain situations. More information is on the Rollflex website. This is Bob Bender, host of the Business Side of Music podcast. Check out our show where we talk about all things related to the music industry. We laugh, we share memories, we discuss what's worked and what didn't work. Our industry is always evolving and can never be locked inside a box. From the rookie fresh off the bus to the well-seasoned professional wondering which new direction to take their career, our show covers all the bases. Join us as we chase this elusive animal we like to call the music industry. Check us out at businesssideofmusic.com. I want to go back to something that you said about interleaving when we were talking about retrieving. Talk to us a little bit more about what interleaving means. Well, uh, if you're trying to master a difficult passage in some music that you're learning, I'm not a musician, but uh, we've had some very interesting correspondence with musicians and people who teach music. And uh, I was looking through those before this conversation. Uh, Mark McDaniel was talking online with a, an orchestra teacher. And he's saying, you know, help your students interleave difficult passages. Uh, work on it. 
go and then work on a different one and come back later and then move on and come back later so that you are uh, shifting between within the music domain or within even that larger piece, uh, different sections of it. Instead of just working over and over and over again on a particular passage, because this over and over and over again thing doesn't help you move that learning into long-term memory. It doesn't help connect it to the other pieces you're trying to learn, so it becomes a natural whole. Okay. Uh, So the interleaving could be multiple musical activities, like maybe you leave that particular passage or measure and go to a different passage, or it could be going to a different song, or it could be going to a different assignment, like maybe you leave the the playing and practicing of a certain piece and go to a theory assignment. Um, and it could also mean going to a different subject, like, okay, I'm taking a break from piano practice right now, I'm going to go work on my math homework. Is that okay. right? Well, yeah, so there's two different issues here. One is interleaving and one is spacing. So okay. if you are trying to learn uh, how to solve the volume of different geometric solids, uh, interleaving would be practicing, you know, the uh, finding the volume of a spheroid, a wedge, a cone, and so forth at, in random sequence, where you've learned the formula for each, but you don't know which problem is coming next. That's interleaved or mixed practice. Uh, spacing is taking that uh, solid geometry thing and doing some of that this morning and coming back to it this afternoon and then coming back to it two days later, spacing that uh, retrieval practice. So mm-hmm. the idea with interleaving is you're working with problem sets in the same domain. Uh. Uh, and with spacing, you're leaving one domain and going on to another one and then coming back. Okay. They're both useful, but they're different. Got it. Yeah. And with the spacing, when you're asked how big of an interval, the book talks about, at the minimum, enough time that a little forgetting has set in, but not so much that the retrieval essentially means relearning the material. Yeah, you want want it to be a little arduous, but you don't want it to be impossible. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was really interesting how the book says we need to stop thinking of standardized testing as a measurement of learning, but rather we should be thinking about it as an act of practicing retrieval of learning from memory. It really is an act of retrieval rather than a way to measure what learning has taken place. Yeah, exactly right. And so, you know, it's very unpopular to think that kids need more testing. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is, when you talk to students, I was talking to some students uh, at a private uh, middle school, and uh, I showed a video from the TV show Nova, where the scientists are showing how sea slugs are creating a long-term memory. He's stimulating them, and he's got these neurons from the sea slugs on his slide, and he shows how poking the siphon uh, with a stimulus, it has a little bit of a current in it. The neuron sends out, you can see it, sends out, it builds, creates a new axon to connect to another neuron. That That's the physical formation of a memory. Hmm. So when you're a student and, and you, you get a quiz, if you've got a good instructor, the instructor will say, this is retrieval practice. You know, there are no stakes or very small stakes. This is practice. We want you to practice retrieving this from memory because that's what helps send out those 
those axons from the neurons and strengthens them and really creates the network in your brain that you're trying to build. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're right. We need to rethink about how we feel about testing. Instead of focusing on testing as a dipstick, we need to focus on retrieval practice, quizzing, testing uh, as a learning strategy. Sure. And that cramming style of learning, sometimes testing rewards that, but it, as the book points out, it's not long-term learning. It's compared to binge and purge eating, where there's a lot going in all at once, but then most of it is coming right back out again. And it's it's just not effective long-term. No, the research is stunning. We don't have any graphs in the book. Perhaps we should have. But uh, when we talk about this and show some of the slides, students who do uh, pull all-nighters and go in and get a decent grade on an exam, Mm -hmm. they don't realize that that kind of cramming or mass practice doesn't stick. You'll do okay on the exam, and off you go, and you think. You have the illusion that you've got that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you're tested again a week later, you will have lost 80% of that. You 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 just didn't remember it. So uh, what feels intuitively useful and gets you your grade, perhaps, doesn't serve you uh, in the long run. Sure. And with this retrieval concept, one thing that I really think about as a music teacher is fairly young students who are learning notes on the staff and you're going through the the clues of, okay, in the treble staff, you can remember that the space notes spell the word face, F-A-C-E. And then a couple weeks, lessons later, they're struggling to find a note on the keyboard and you're like, okay, what letter name is that? And it would be so easy and in the short term, feel like things are moving along quicker to just shout out face, member face, you know, right. <laughs> at the same time, it's like if you just stop and wait for them to retrieve, you know, what is that clue again that I right. need to use to remember those note names, then you're probably going to have to have that conversation a lot less frequently. <laughs> exactly. What you're doing is you're helping them figure it out Yeah. It, 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 to create their own understanding. And that's why... Uh, instruction that is, you know, lectures and very simple things, make it as clear as possible. The idea that the student is an empty vessel and you can fill it up, it doesn't really work. You have to create an understanding among the learner that they have to create their own understanding, their own understanding of the material, and they have to struggle with it a little bit. Now, it's not going to feel real good, but you'll mm-hmm. be surprised uh, as you move along to find that it sticks. Yeah. Well, one thing I like, too, when you talked about mixing it up, is the book talks about how one way to mix it up is to learn in ways other than your preferred learning style. And in the, in the introduction, I referenced learning styles. And we've had a guest on the show talking about multiple intelligences and how Howard Gardner's work in that area. Most of us tend to think of finding and identifying our preferred style and really sticking with that. But you talk about Mix it up, learn in learning styles that are not your preferred way. And that's another way to make the learning deeper and last longer and be more applicable in other settings in the future. Yeah. Uh, the presumption of learning styles is that some people learn better when the material is presented in a way like uh, auditory or visually or kinetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other people learn better when it's presented in a different way. The research has been a large body of research, and there's no evidence that that is true. 
there is evidence that the topic that you're trying to learn is probably, if you're learning graphic arts, you know, visually. If it's music, auditory. But these strategies of retrieval practice and interleaving and spacing and those kinds of things, elaboration, hold through across all these different forms. Mm -hmm. So people do have learning preferences, and perhaps they will stick with difficulty a little longer if it's presented in the manner they prefer to receive it. But there's no evidence that they will learn it better presented that way. Sure. Well, and I should clarify, the guest that we had that was speaking about this was a big fan of mixing it up. And it was he he was a fan of figuring out how you do learn best. And it's not necessarily the learning styles that schools tend to cater to, because they do tend to cater to people who learn in certain ways. And there mm-hmm. are other ways to learn. And and I'll, I'll link to the episode in the show notes, but he did a, a great job of talking about those different styles and figuring out how you learn best, but then using that information to also kind of cross-train in those other learning. Um, well, exactly. The Howard Gardner material is fascinating. We all have many different uh, forms of intelligence. And the the fear with uh, learning styles that someone will limit themselves by saying, well, my style is this, and uh, I won't learn it well if it's not presented in this particular way. But we know from Gardner's work and from the other uh, research that there's lots of different ways to learn, and you should be cautious about limiting yourself to mm-hmm. uh, one or two different forms of intelligence. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Well, another point I wanted to make just real quick about the retrieval concepts in the book is reflection, you say, is a form of retrieval practice, asking what happened, what did I do, how did it work out, what would I do differently next time, which I thought was really insightful. Yeah, reflection. So one of the questions we asked was, why, how, why do some people learn uh, from their errors and other people don't? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a decent question. Yeah. And uh, when I went around and interviewed, the book is full of anecdotes of people from many different fields who have encountered an incident, uh, uh, not maybe just one, but incidents in their lives where they have to call upon their skill and knowledge. And I would talk with them about how did you know how to do that and so forth. And the one that really comes to mind is a brain surgeon with the Mayo Clinic. He was describing a delicate procedure he learned. And he said, this is something I developed myself. It's not in the textbooks anywhere, but it comes to me because I do a surgery and afterwards I say, you know, what went well? What could have gone better? How might I have done it differently? Would I take smaller stitches? Would I do this different thing? And over time, then he retrieves in this reflect form of process of habit of reflection, he retrieves what happened, what the problem was, what his solution was, and then he imagines making it better next time. So he's retrieving, uh, he's elaborating on it, and he's preparing his mind for the next time he comes across the challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one other thing I want to quick just touch on is the illusion of mastery. I thought it was really fascinating in the book, how learning strategies are discussed that create the illusion of mastery. Talk to us a little bit about what that is. Well, one is one we've talked about, which is spending an all-nighter and getting a decent grade on an exam and going on through the rest of the semester thinking you're on top of that material. And the fact is, the human condition is one of forgetting. Mm-hmm. We know from research from way back that people forget stuff very rapidly unless you continue to retrieve it from time to time. 
So another way of uh, having an illusion of mastery is to practice your 20-foot putt over and over again on the golf course and go home at the end of the day thinking, you know, I've gotten a lot better at that. Well, the fact is the learning hasn't been consolidated into the parts of the brain that hold long-term memory. Uh, You've tried to, like, memorize that putt instead of, uh, like the beanbag tossers, try mixing up the different uh, holes and letting your brain get better at judging the problem and applying the solution. So it's an illusion of mastery if you sit there working just your short-term memory going over and over again with your 20-foot putt. Mm -hmm. You're not really doing yourself a service. Another way of having an illusion of mastery is to re-read notes, underlining, highlighting, for an exam, reread, reread, reread. You get fluent in the language there, but you are not asking yourself, why is it like this? What is it like that I already know? How would I describe this to a friend? You're not engaging the brain in the work of understanding, learning, and applying the knowledge. Mm. Uh, so you go in, you take your exam, you get a lousy grade, you go and complain to the instructor saying, I don't get it. I've studied hours on this. I had, I knew it upside down. Uh-huh. Uh, well, that's just the, the words on the page you knew. You didn't really have mastery of the content. Uh-huh. Well, and I can totally see that applying to piano students, too. This is just occurring to me right now, but students can become really fluent in the notes on a page in a Mm -hmm. song, but not really engaged with any expression at Mm -hmm. all. And Mm -hmm. you can tell when they're just simply regurgitating what's on the page, and it's correct. There's nothing Mm -hmm. incorrect about Mm -hmm. it, but you can tell that they're not really mentally grasping that this is where things are building and this is where we have sort of this climax of this phrase and this is where it's kind of we have this diminuendo and it's getting slower and softer you know and so without that expression you know they can they can repeat and play exactly what those symbols are on the page but you can tell they're not really totally getting it (laughs) they're not musicians you know music rises from the soul it doesn't rise from the page Mm. Uh, and uh it's, exa- it's a great example. Uh, you can memorize something, but that doesn't mean you've mastered it. Yeah. Uh, well, this is so fascinating. I could talk about this book for hours, but I'll have you close us out here <laughs> with a coda, what I call the coda, the musical ending. Do you have a song or a story that you can share with us about a moment that music enhanced your life as we close things out today? Uh, well, uh, we all have many of those. For me, one that comes to mind is a writing. I published an historical novel about a young woman uh, at the turn of the last century who flees a failed marriage and ends up in Alaska. And fiction for me is a place where the human dilemma <laughs> drives the story. Uh, and uh, I found in writing that novel, having opera music playing in the background was hugely important to me. It was there was two benefits to it. One is I didn't understand the words. <laughs> <laughs> the other is I understood the emotion. <sighs> and so, uh, when lyrics can be distracting when you're writing, so it is helpful if you can't understand the words. Oh, for sure. And so for me, uh, you know, you move your you move a novel through. Uh, the actions of the characters and the actions of the characters are drawn out of their emotions. And so whether it's a moment of bliss or some kind of an an angry period or Mm -hmm. whatever it is to help me inhabit the characters, I had the 
the passion of opera playing. And uh, I just found it helped me feel the feelings of my characters. And uh, I often will come to opera when I'm writing creatively. So you just have that on in the background as you're writing certain sections of your book? Right, right. I I picked up this three-disc CD set of uh, great opera arias done by Deutsche Grammophon, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago. And uh, they're just stunning, stunning uh, pieces. And um, I play that. Mm. And you told me you looked it up on Amazon recently. (laughs) Well, I did. (laughs) We were in a... We were in a, uh, I don't know, a bookstore somewhere, I think maybe in London. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I, I saw it. I thought it looked interesting, and I bought it. I think it might, I might have paid 20 or maybe even $30 for it, which seems unlikely or uncharacteristic of me. But <laughs> <laughs> I, So I, I, was, I looked it up on Amazon, and they had it, and they wanted 900 and some dollars for it. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. So... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, good deal on your twenty dollar version. That's all, and you definitely have gotten your money's worth out of it. It sounds like <laughs> I have. I have. I have to say, you really, uh, you really grasp the the core ideas of make it stick. I'm very impressed uh, with how you're able to articulate them and relate them to your field. Oh well, thanks. Well, love the book. I highly recommend it to listeners. Obviously, um, we'll have lots of links in the show notes of links to to get the book and to connect with you and your work, your website, and so forth. Thank you so much for putting this gem out into the world and making that happen. And obviously, you must still be talking to your brother-in-law after the process, <laughs> I'm assuming. <laughs> it was a, it was really a remarkable way to get closer to uh, him and to really <laughs> understand the incredible depth of his of his research and his impact on the world. Uh, he's a member of the National Academy of Science, and he's just a... Uh, He's got a you know great sense of humor too, so there you go. <laughs> In addition to Peter, our thanks go to his co-authors Henry Rodiger and Mark McDaniel. This is essential information for teachers as well as anyone else interested in learning smarter instead of just trying harder. If you are listening to this episode before March 31st and have any interest in the therapeutic use of music for those with dementia, you'll want to check out last week's episode. Our guest was a neuroscientist with the National Institute on Aging, which is holding an online meeting on March 31st to develop evidence-based music therapies for brain disorders of aging. The NIA is looking for input from a variety of stakeholders. You're invited to this meeting. The goal is to help develop standards and tools that can eventually be applied to all music-based interventions across the lifespan. This is a free event, but you do need to register. The link is in the show notes. If you use the concepts from Make It Stick to enhance life with music or enhance life in any other way, I'd love to hear about it. You can connect with me on email, social media, or my website. All links are in today's show notes at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast slash episode 87. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.